Sorry again about the late notice for uh, Wednesday night. That was kind of... <clears throat> I told my wife, I said, this is, there, this is an absolute no-win. <clears throat> this, is, this is absolutely going down into the record books as... Uh, Genesis 15, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for giving to us the gift of faith and thank you for this man of faith and his testimony and encourage our faith from your faithfulness to him and we pray your blessing upon our Sunday school time in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I mentioned last week, I think, that, you know, we were, I was getting, I was kind of winding this down. My intention had been originally to just do the first 11 chapters of Genesis and just to recover, you know, some of the <clears throat> foundational material uh, of things that are going on in the world that uh, all things that are happening in the world are in some way related to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, but that would also be true of Abraham. Uh, because out of this world, God is gathering to himself a people. And all of the people that he is gathering to himself have a direct connection to Abraham. Um, so that we who believe are part of this great multitude that is going to be a descendant of him uh, through faith. And so... Um, so, any, but anyway, we're, so we're we're going to do a few more chapters on Abraham. Um, I don't know exactly. I I know now where I'm going to go next for Sunday school, and uh, so in a few weeks we'll we'll begin looking at um, a topic in Sunday school. So, kind of looking forward to that. All right. So, anyway, uh, Genesis chapter 15. Uh, is where we are this morning. Um, and if you'll just look at the opening of verse number one, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Um, <clears throat> so the events of chapter 15 is presented to us sequentially with clear reference to what had happened in chapter 14. Uh, after these things. And, you know, I'm not trying to build a, a specific pattern and break it all down in detail, but if you will look at the life of Abraham and read through his life experiences thoughtfully, you will see that there are many ups and downs in his life. Um, these do not become a pattern for us. In other words, we should not excuse our own failures, but we should recognize that the life of faith is a life that involves up and down. Abraham believed the Lord. We'll look at the references. The New Testament reminds us of that clearly in several passages, that Abraham believed the Lord. And we will make a note a little bit later here in Genesis chapter 15, that the author is pointing us all the way back probably to Genesis 12 with reference to the faith of Abraham. So whether or not Abraham believed God is never really the question. He believed the Lord, and that faith was counted to him for righteousness. Um, and yet beyond any shadow of a doubt, folks, some of the things that he did 
um, definitely point to some deficiency in that faith or confusion in that faith or weakness in that faith or a doubt in that faith as is perhaps evident even in this passage uh, this morning. And so in Genesis 12, right, in Genesis, the end of Genesis 11, we're introduced to him. In chapter 12, we're told about his response to the promise of God, which is immediately followed up by his relocation to Egypt because there's a famine in the land of promise. So the promise is a problem at times. Um, And then in chapter 13 and 14, we see his faith emerging through and shining brightly. Um, And we find him interacting with his nephew Lot, who appears to be the foil in his life. Um, The man who is contrasted as... Uh, the the believer who is not living uh, by faith, whose every decision is made upon the visible, the tangible, and the pleasurable, um, as opposed to decisions based in the promises of God. And so we have this chapter, chapter 15, in which God again comes and ministers to Abraham in this time of uncertainty. Um, which is part of the encouragement to us that God is faithful to us, um, whether our faith is strong or weak. Um, And then, of course, we'll look at chapter 16, which is, you know, a a place where his faith, I don't want to say his faith fails, but his, his human attempt to bring about the promise proves to be disastrous. Um, which then is followed up in chapter 17 with another reaffirmation of his faith and a recommitment on the part of God. So, uh, so as we look through the life of Abraham, right, we, we keep, we, you know, there's much to Abraham's life that really is not going to be duplicated to us. We, we didn't come out of Ur of the Chaldees. We're not going to be called physically necessarily to leave our homes and to go to a far country. But he is a metaphor for the life of faith, that God is going to call us to things that we don't know. He's going to make promises that we will not receive in entirety in this life, Um, that much of our life of living by faith is going to be involved with very mundane and routine things that do not seem particularly exciting, Um, and we will get to that. But overall, as we look at the life of Abraham, we keep coming back to the two fundamental questions that anybody who is going to live a life of faith is going to deal with, which is, number one, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? I mean, as, as I look at you, and as, as pastors of conservative congregations look out over their congregation, they look in large part, right, in the 21st century, at a group of people who have very little trust in their government. We don't entirely trust our government. We don't trust that they're telling us the truth. And there are people, of course, who do trust the government. And there have been times when people who sat in churches like these did trust their government. If you wanted to find people who trusted the government, you flocked to fundamental churches. 
but particularly over the last couple of years with COVID and some of the policies imposed by a radically left agenda, we have a decreased confidence in our government. Can our government be trusted? And whether or not we trust the government determines how we respond to government. So, right, with that as an illustration, can God be trusted? And one of the things that we see through the life of Abraham is that God keeps coming back arguing for his trustworthiness. He will do it here in this chapter. Can he be trusted? And then the second question, folks, is this. Well, will we trust him? If he can be trusted, will we trust him? And that trust will be reflected in the way that we do things or maybe the way that we don't do things. Can he be trusted? And so these are the kind of the core ideas that that we take away. We're not just reading Old Testament narratives of things that happened a long time ago about a really prominent Bible character. We're, We're interacting in our lives as Abraham interacted in his life. Is God trustworthy and will I trust him? What will that trust look like? So let's begin then by reading the first five verses of Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth Out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So we have Abraham's question in faith. God appeared in a vision to Abram and told him not to fear, which would raise the question, what was he frightened about? What did he fear? And I think, folks, that we don't think that he feared poverty, although the immediate context is that he had rejected the plunder from Ketalamer's slaughter, that he had told the king of Sodom to keep the booty, He didn't want it. Keep the loot. Keep the goods. None of that needs to come to me. We know from chapter 13 and verse number 2 that he was rich. We know from chapter 14 that he had 318 men he numbered in his household who he could send off to war. So he had a large, substantial household. It is possible that he fears retribution yet again from Ketolamer which perhaps is why God refers to himself as Abraham's shield, right? That he has mounted this war party to go and recover Lot and all the people, and he brings them back. And now, knowing how people are in the world as it is, is Ketalamer going to come down and take it out on him? God assures him not to worry there. But, but the context seems to imply, folks, 
that what Abraham really feared was that the promise was not going to come true. That the promise of a seed was going to fail. And perhaps it was this recent military incursion that caused Abraham to realize how fragile life was and how risky living in the promised land was. Because that seems to be the nature of the conversation. What are you going to give me? Not how much money are you going to give me, but what about, what about my descendant? Verse number 3, Abram said, Behold to me thou hast given no seed. What will you give me? I have no child. My household manager is not even native. What will you give me? You've not given me a seed. You promised me a seed. But you have not given me a seed. This, by the way, folks, is the first time, if you're tracking these things, this is the first time that we have a record of what Abraham actually said to God. We know in Genesis 12.8 and Genesis 13.4 that he had called upon the name of the Lord. He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. But we have no idea what he said. Up to this point in time, God has done all the talking. All of the record of the conversations have been one-sided. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. But here's the first thing that Abram says to God that we know of, and it goes back to the promise. What about the promise? What about the promise? I have no child. Time is passing. Decisions are made. Actions are taken. Risks exist. Yet I have no child. What are you going to do about that? And there are numerous occasions, folks, in the life of Abraham where he poses to God what he believes to be a solution. Right? One of his solutions is the conception of Ishmael. And another of his solutions is the promise be passed off to Ishmael. Here, here's an idea. Let's do this. We always have good ideas of how God should fulfill his word. But God has his own ideas about what he will do. And in verse number 2, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? I think the implication there is that Eleazar of Damascus, the Syrian, is the man who will inherit all of Abraham's stuff if Abraham dies. So what about the promise? And what about the child? And to that, God reassures him then, verse number 5. What does God do? What does God do? Okay, now look, folks, let's, let's, let's get this. Right? What does God do to the doubts and fears of his people? He speaks to them. This is why we have Bibles. 
This is why we should be familiar with them and know them. What does God do? He speaks to Abraham. Verse number five, he brought him forth abroad and said, look, now toward the heaven, tell the stars. Can you count the stars? If you be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. So shall thy seed be. So here's a conversation about his faith. The heir will be your child, verse number four. This shall not be thine heir, not this Eleazar of Damascus, but he that comes out of your own bowels shall be thine heir. Your physical, not that Abraham is going to give birth. It's, we're, not, right, we're not living in a trans world in Genesis 15. But this is going to be your physical child. And he is going to exist in plurality. One child who will give rise to multitudes. And in verse number 6, which I read, folks, you have the narrator's commentary on verses 1 through 5. Right? 1 through 5, God and Abraham are having a conversation. They're talking. What am I going to get? I don't have the promise. I don't have the seed. You may have noticed I'm getting old. You may have noticed it's a dangerous world. You may have noticed the land is not a popular place for me. What do I get? Here's what you get. Your child, your seed. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now I just want to pause here because I made mention of this earlier. I am not a Hebrew grammar expert, so I am relying upon Hebrew grammar experts for this rendition. But this is the testimony of several good men. The grammar of the sentence in Genesis 15.6 is written in such a way to convey to the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew here would understand that Abraham's faith existed prior to verses 1 through 5. Certainly Abraham believed verses 1 through 5. But Abraham had already believed. This is a reassurance. The faith that he had going into chapter 15 is simply being restated in chapter 15, 6. And it doesn't necessarily read that way in our English. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with our, with our English, but since he had believed on the Lord, we might say, it was counted to him for righteousness. In Genesis 15, 6, folks, I'm going to ask you to turn, if you would, to turn first to Romans chapter 4. We'll come back to Genesis 15. But Genesis 15, 6 really becomes the tagline for the life of Abraham. Or Genesis 15.6 becomes kind of the handy-dandy reference point for New Testament authors. When when they want you to think about Abraham, they're going to take you right back to Genesis 15.6 and assume that we will be able to read all of the story 
of Abraham's life. So let's just look at three separate books that make reference to Genesis 15.6. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Those were not his major considerations. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. There's the quote. Genesis 15.6 counted. Romans 4.22, it was imputed. It was credited to him. This becomes, again, folks, the the major theme. And, And this is the way that we are identified with Abraham as people of faith. We do not bring our own righteousness before the Lord. We are unrighteous. Christ justifies the ungodly, not the godly. We believe the Lord's testimony about Christ and salvation and our own sinfulness. And upon that, his righteousness is credited to us. That's the testimony. That's the way that is used there. Verse number, or chapter Romans 4.22, Therefore it was imputed to him, for righteousness, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. So he becomes the template, he becomes the model, he becomes the example, not his own righteous, righteousness, but the righteousness that comes of faith, he believed. He believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, second book in which Genesis 15.6 is referenced. Now, in Romans chapter 4, folks, the subject matter before us is our salvation. And all across independent fundamental Baptist churches, this is pretty much a rock-solid doctrine. We don't, we don't get very confused on this. We understand that it is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith that is our, sanctif- our salvation. But the subject matter in Galatians chapter 3 is not salvation, it's sanctification. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 5. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit. He He that serves to you the Spirit. Okay, let's just pause there. Who serves to us the Spirit? Who would do that? Right, none other than God. No one can serve the Spirit to us other than God. And worketh miracles among you. All right, I realize that's a little perhaps controversial today, but let's just, let's just imagine a real miracle. 
who is the real miracle worker among us? Right? God. Right? Jesus. God, if there's really a miracle, if somebody is genuinely healed, who worked that miracle? God. Men don't work miracles. Men don't give out the Spirit. Right? God distributes His Spirit. God distributes the gifts of the Spirit. God does miracles. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 5. Now then, this one that does these things, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit or worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law? Do you have to go kosher to get the Holy Spirit? Do you have to bring an animal to the altar? If you're asking God for a miracle, if you're asking God for a miracle of healing, do you think you have a better chance of getting that miracle of healing if you, if you find some part of the law to fulfill? That that's what's required of you now? Or you have this alternative, Galatians 3.5, or by the hearing of faith. In other words, folks, is the working of the Spirit in the life of a believer a product of faith or works of the law? Is the possibility of a miracle on the part of God the possibility of faith or the works of the law? And you notice how Paul ties now not only our salvation, but our sanctification. This is what he is all worked up in Galatians that, right, now we're going to go back. Now, now we've trusted Christ. Now we're going to go back and we're going to recover the law and we're going to bring everybody under the law of Moses because nobody's going to be a good Christian until they go back to the law. And Paul will have none of that. <clears throat> Why? Because of the pattern of Abraham. Galatians 3.6 Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when it comes to our salvation, <clears throat> it's a faith. When it comes to our sanctification, it's a faith. And if I could put it this way, folks, James chapter 2, when it comes to our service, it's a faith. James chapter 2 and verse number 21. And you know that James has posed many problems to believers because of the emphasis upon works as we see here in James chapter 2 and verse number 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now what James wants you to see, however, is what brought him to that place. 
So you have verse 22. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? See how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not, not by faith only. And, and James, folks, is not making a scary point and he's not making a heresy point. He's making a valid biblical point. People who really believe God do the things or and are endeavoring to do things that God is telling them to do because they believe him. Why are you doing that? Because God told me to. That's why I'm doing it. And I can't really claim to believe God if I never do any of the things that he tells me to do. That's the question that James is exploring. What kind of faith is it if God gives you a... I mean, let, if, God, if, you know, if your boss gave you a list of 20 things to accomplish in the course of a week, and I'm just being stupid, and I know that being off the cuff, I'm just, I know I'm going to be sorry that I've even done this. Right? Get them done or else. Isn't your response going to be in large part dependent upon how much of your boss's words you believe? Or if he said, get these 20, these 20 things done and you'll get a great bonus. Right? Aren't, our, aren't our actions a response to what we believe? Isn't part of the problem in our world of <clears throat> so many disobedient children the fact that their parents speak empty threats? So James is just exploring what kind of world it would be if people could just say that they believe God, but nothing that they ever did reflected that they believed God. And who becomes the benchmark for that? Well, look at Abraham. Look at Abraham out there tying up, right? All these years, right? We're, we're building to this crescendo, right? Which is realistically probably where we're going to stop in our study of the life of Abraham. Right? We're building to this crescendo. I'm going to give you a child. Well, I don't have him yet, Genesis chapter 15. I don't have him yet, Genesis 16. I don't have him yet, Genesis 17. I have him, Genesis 21. I'm going to tie him up and bind him hand and foot and stick a knife in his heart, Genesis 22. The life of faith. The life of faith. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. So in verses 1 through 5, we have a conversation. God and Abraham are talking. They're talking about the promise. God responds to Abraham's questions by giving him Bible. Bible that we know from Romans chapter 4 is not just for Abraham. 
Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. In verses 7 then through the end of the chapter, right? so we have a conversation between God and Abraham. We have a narrator so that we don't miss this. Here's one of those places where the narrator makes sure that we don't want to miss what's happening. Abraham believed God was counted for righteousness. Now we have God's response to Abraham's faith. What is God going to do to reinforce his promise? Can he be believed? Can he be believed? So verse number seven, right? What does God say? He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. My past action bears witness to my faithfulness. This is just one of the many reasons, folks, that it's important to remember that the Bible is a historical record, an accurate one of what God has said and done. Because God usually comes to us at some point in time and goes, what have I done in the past? Who, who have I let down in the past? Who, where have I failed in previous situations or generations? So I am Jehovah. I am the God whose existence is vested in myself. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I brought you here for this reason. We are not on some wild goose chase. And I am not just leading you around the world for a little amusement. Abraham responds to that in verse number 8. How, whereby shall I know that I will inherit it? But, but how will I know? Right? You've made the promise, I believe the promise, how will I know? And so God says, all right, let's have covenant. Let's have covenant. He said unto him, verse number 9, take me an heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he took unto him all these, divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the other, but the birds divided he not. So you got the animals, you got them cut in half. Except the birds. The birds are whole. Verse 11, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be stranger in a land that is not theirs. Shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, 
the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. How do I know? Let's make a covenant. I will make a covenant with you. So the animals again, folks, they are taken, they are killed, they are cut in half, they are laid out in pieces so that there is like a pathway in between them. And actually when you read in verse number 18, in the same way the Lord made a covenant with Abram, you might have a note in your reference Bible that the word is cut. Right? There's, there's symbolism in the making of the covenant. The... <clears throat> Right? We might, we might say something like signed in blood. The, the symbolism is that if anybody would violate the terms of the covenant, they would suffer that fate. They would be chopped in pieces. Predators are driven away in verse number 11. And I would just refer you to the internet how much symbolic activity in this act is greatly debated. You know, what the implications of that are, I don't really even want to get into. Um, Because some of it just becomes speculation. Certainly, Abram is taking some initiative, but I don't think, folks, that you should ever read verse number 11 to interpret this as the preservation of the covenant being in Abraham's hands. That's what I'm getting at. There's all kinds of speculation to that. That God made the covenant, but Abraham had to keep the covenant. Abraham falls into a deep sleep and experiences a very dark darkness. And I think the point is just that. I mean, in a world, folks, that is not electrified. So when when the sun goes down, it's already pretty dark. Abraham experiences both a supernatural sleep and a supernatural darkness. The presence of divinity is in the covenant. So I would understand verse number 12 to be indicating the presence of the Lord in some tangible physical way. And in this deep sleep and in this dark darkness, God communicates with Abraham and Abraham is still able to understand it. Right? So he's not unconscious. And what God does then in verses 13 through 16 is enlarge upon information that he had already given to Abraham. He'd already made, right, the the promise contains two Two elements for our purposes. One is a son and the other is land. I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give you an heir to live in the land. In Genesis chapter 15 then we have the prediction of 400 years of Egyptian captivity. Now this is going to become important a little bit later on folks. But in this section, verses 13 through 16, on the one hand, God is telling Abraham, I have made you a promise. 
And on the other hand, he is telling Abraham, you're going to die before it all comes to pass. Abraham isn't going to live 400 years. Abraham lives to be 175. So thy seed, verse 13, will be stranger in a land that is not theirs. They shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. There's the captivity. There's the time in Egypt. And then verse 14, that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they shall come out with great substance. The exodus. And you recall that upon their departure after the Passover, they spoil the Egyptians. They don't just leave Egypt, they leave with all the Egyptian jewelry and all the Egyptian cash they can carry. Verse number 15, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, 175 years. Verse number 16, In the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Your descendants who are going to go to that strange land for 400 years are finally going to come back when I'm done with the Amorites. And then there is again, folks, in verse number 17, a manifestation of the presence of God so that we have this, these words of the Lord bookended by these supernatural events, deep sleep, dark darkness, Verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces, the pieces of the dead animals. And God institutes a covenant with the emphasis upon the land. Verses 18 through 21, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed, have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and then he lists all those people. Which, by the way, folks, right? <clears throat> so, so what then becomes, as we, as we walk, re- read through our Old Testament, right? the history of the Jewish people is the fulfillment of this passage in Genesis chapter 15. Isaac is born. The people begin to multiply. They are taken into the land, of, they move to the land of Egypt. They multiply in Egypt. They are delivered from Egypt. They are brought back into the land. It is an utter conquest of the land, folks. And with the exception of the individual Rahab and her family, you can read about this in Joshua chapter 11, and the Gibeonites, God determined that he would show mercy to no other inhabitants of those lands. They were all to be exterminated. They were not even given an opportunity to cry out for help. Just kill them all. So, can God be trusted? Yes. Will we trust him? Well, that's always the question. All right, we're going to stop there. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.